Imagine being a skier your whole life. As a youngster, you qualify annually for your Junior Olympics team in your region. You go to U.S. Junior National Championships. You go on to college and ski with some relative success, but at the end of it, you're really on nobody's radar. Then you graduate college. You essentially quit training in order to coach high school skiers. Then you get offered a coaching job at a strong club. I know a lot of people who have lived this description in one form or another. You might too. But then imagine one day, you feel kind of fit and win a big local race, so you go to the American Birkebeiner with some friends because it sounds kind of fun. You think you might do well. And then, you almost win it. Not the classic Berkey either. The big one, the skate race. In fact, you lose by one-tenth of a second to the defending champion. This is not a fable. It's Holly Brooks' story. This episode of Threshold is brought to you by Solomon. Recognizing that the future existence of skiing is directly impacted by climate change, Solomon is confirming that sustainability will be a major aspect of its performance parameters in future winter sports products. The first of those sustainable products is the S-Max E-Skin Nordic Ski, the company's first ski constructed with a sustainable mindset, with its core constructed from recycled plastic bottles. For more information on Solomon's focus on sustainability and all their great products, visit Solomon.com. Solomon, time to play. Every now and then, someone comes along who breaks all the norms. I can only imagine how many daydreamers out there working out, having a full-time job, trying to stay fit, have hoped that they might miraculously end up sprinting to win the American Birkebeiner five years after graduating college, off of a steady diet of just working out with the kids and the athletes they're coaching. But Holly Brooks was the right person, in the right place, at the right time. First of all, she has a great heart, an easy genuineness about her to take things as they come. And when you take things as they come, I think it's easier for, well, things to come. Plus, she dated, then married a skier who knew a lot about elite ski racing firsthand. That probably didn't hurt either. She also landed a coaching job under the coach and in the program that was having the most success of any American ski club, both domestically and internationally. Top it all off, and one of her buddies happened to be the most successful U.S. female skier in history. All these circumstances may have led Holly Brooks to a near Berkey win in 2009, but they certainly weren't common either. By the way, she went back and won the Berkey in 2011, and again in 2015. Still, Holly Brooks had what the French call a je ne sais quoi, a certain something about her that is uncommon and special. By no true intention of her own to begin with, Holly Brooks emerged in a period from 2009 to 2014 to help spark a period of unprecedented success in U.S. women's international ski racing. A World Cup best fifth place and a podium that launched a bunch more in the 2012 World Cup relay in Yelavare, Sweden, established her as a valuable asset in the rise of U.S. women's skiing that we take almost for granted now today. And she wasn't what they were looking for in a U.S. ski team member either. In fact, you could say she was a fly in the ointment. But she proved over those years to be a big benefit to the greater good. She made that ointment a little more what they actually wanted. A serendipitous misintention that in the end, worked. In this holiday and Olympic season, we wanted to deck the halls with a story that is perhaps a little less understood. Because Christmas and the Olympics are ripe for stories of miracles. It's even better when they're true. Now a professional entrepreneur, wife, and mother of four-year-old twins... Threshold hangs the holly on the holidays with Holly Brooks from her home in Anchorage. Holly, welcome to Threshold. Happy to be here. Awesome. So let's start with, I do, I do this with every guest. Let's start with your childhood. Where did you grow up and, and how did you get into skiing? 
I grew up about three miles north of the Space Needle in Seattle, Washington, um, in the middle of the grunge era. Um, so it was kind of an unlikely path. Uh, but we grew up skiing at Snoqualmie Pass. My family had a cabin, um, well, across from Hayak in Gold Creek that we had to ski into. And so at one point we had three generations of ski instructors. Um, so I grew up skiing on the weekends and grew up in the middle of a city where no one really knows what cross-country skiing is. So you started skiing at a pretty young age and your family was into it. Yeah. Yep. Um, I started skiing, you know, I don't know, two, something like that, like with my parents. And then uh, when I was three and a half, my uh, parents had my triplet siblings and so I have two brothers, one sister, and then we were all skiing at a young age, which as a mom now myself, I find to be nothing short of a miracle. <laughs> cool. So tell me a little bit about how you got into racing. Did your family all kind of start racing as a kid or did you not race much as a kid? I did. I did race um, the Snoqualmie Nordic team. My dad was essentially the coach. My siblings were my teammates and, uh, you know, we were a part of PNSA Pacific Northwest, um, which is, as you know, one of the smaller divisions. And so I was kind of like this small, shy girl from Seattle, uh, you know, out there against and competing against the big clubs from Bend and the Matau and, you know, Spokane at that time. So definitely, uh, my first JOs was, um, Boabic. Chad. Oh, really? <laughs> what year was that? Uh, oh, gosh. 95? Or okay, Giant's yes. Ridge. Giant's Sorry, Ridge, yeah. That's Moab. Giant's Ridge. Yeah, because okay. so, okay. so if you're wondering why, why Holly brings that up, it's because I'm from there. I'm, I'm actually from Mountain Iron. That's like the, the yeah. smallest. I had 65 uh, people in my graduating class, and I lived about 20 miles from Boabic. And that's how I got into ski racing and biathlon. Both they had a biathlon range there there and a lot of big ski races, like Junior Olympics. So. So that's cool. Yeah. And, and, and so how did you do, you know, how did you fare as a junior athlete? Like, you know, how were you doing at junior Olympics? Was it like a, were you like a standout? Were you, were you on the podium or? <laughs> no, I was not a standout. I was not on the podium. I was like mid to back of the pack, um, holding, holding down that spot, but <laughs> just really happy to be there. And I, I had a lot of fun. Like it was just, it was a passion. It became my lifestyle. Um, so, you know, not to fast forward in the story, but I always call myself like the unlikely Olympian. Cause I still, yeah. at least part of me today identifies as this like middle of the pack skier and, you know, really like a big part of my professional ski life. Like it kind of feels like that was a dream. And sometimes I'm like, not sure that it really happened. And I have to like, look at pictures and be like, <laughs> oh Yeah. Actually, that that did happen. That did happen. How did that happen? Weird. <laughs> oh, it happened. I, I I saw all of it. It's definitely there. That's that's why you're here. So cool. So <laughs> at at some point, at some point, you decide you want to ski in college. Now, Whitman College ski program has two people I know who. Oh, maybe Eli Brown was the coach. I think so. I know Eli coached there. And Jason Cork and you both skied there. Now, did you, Jason Cork is Jesse Diggins' coach right now. So, were you in court? Were you on this team at the same time? Yeah. Uh, Cork made an appearance at Whitman for, I think it might have just been a semester. Okay. <laughs> um, so it was, it was a very, he was like pretty elusive. He like showed up and then he disappeared, um, which 
you know, I don't know, should come as no surprise. Um, but it's really fun to go like that far back with Cork. And then Eli Brown was my coach freshman year of college. And that was really formative because I had never really had a coach that wasn't my dad. I had never had a team that wasn't my siblings. And um, Eli knows how to have fun. So it was sure. just, it was like really cool to have a team and just deepen my love for the sport that I already loved, you know? Yeah. And I think of Eli, I mean, Eli and I grew up ski racing. He was a year younger than me in Minnesota and, and we raced against each other, obviously both in running. We actually raced more against running than in skiing. Cause I never skied in high school. I, I didn't have a team, <clears throat> but I just think about Eli kind of the glue of all you guys. Like Eli's testing skis over there and Cork is coaching Jesse over there on the team. It's just kind of a, it's kind of a neat little pocket in history of American ski culture. So I, I wanted to give Whitman college a shout out in Walla Walla, Washington and, and kind of, so, so, yeah. you know, you, you got into school. Did you go to Whitman particularly to ski or was that just kind of a, an afterthought? Essentially I knew that I wanted to ski, but I wasn't, uh, you know, good enough to be recruited anywhere, get a scholarship anywhere, you know, et cetera. I wanted to stay on the West coast and I wanted to go to a small school and that was the only option and it was it turned out to be a really good option for for me and um you know I'm bummed that uh they no longer have a team like yeah like many schools like many schools yeah I I know I know I I I worked in that I worked in that that uh environment for quite a while I'm glad to say my small college team that I started is still being still still going here so it's good um so do you remember, while you were at Whitman, do you remember what kinds of goals you had as a skier? You know, so at Whitman, we raced in what's called USCSA, United States Collegiate Skiing Association, which was kind of hilarious because there was no regular season. Like, we had nationals, but there was no regular season. Right, right, right. And so we'd go to nationals and, like, I don't know, race against people we had never, like, seen before. Um, and I actually did pretty well there just because the level of competition was pretty low. And mm. then, um, my sophomore year, I think I actually came up to regionals, uh, RMISA regionals here in Anchorage. And I think I was 11th in the skate race or something, which wow. was crazy. It was like, whoa, where, where'd that come from? And then cool. we dabbled a little bit in RMISA uh, and uh, here we were like little kind of like D3 school, you know, kind of nerdy yeah. against all the, all the scandals. <laughs> <laughs> I know what that's like. Hey, I know, I know. I've, I've been the band, I've been the leader of that band before. So, um, so, so you get through college. What year did you graduate from Whitman? 2004. 2004. Okay. So you get through college. Most skiers on the Olympic track by that time are at least were are or at least were moving to a program where they might maximize their chances to go to the next level. Where were you with skiing after you graduated from Whitman? I, you know, my senior year, I think I got sick a lot. Like I had some sinus issues and uh, my senior year was just a disaster, but I knew that I didn't want to be done with skiing and I really wanted to live somewhere uh, where there was snow. And one of my, college teammates, Sarah Shane, shout out to her and her family, uh, recruited me up here to Alaska. And then I became the head coach of the West Anchorage High School Ski Team, which Rick Coppola, uh, you know, also coached and Chris Grover has a connection. And so all of a sudden, the girl from Seattle 
whose dad was her coach, who was now the coach of a team with a hundred kids. And, you know, it was just really cool for me to be part of a ski scene, to have a ski scene, to be around people who knew what skiing was. And so I was already in love with the sport, but then I, you know, fell in love with it here again. Um, in Anchorage, just being around so many skiers, like having ski trails nearby. Um, and then, you know, of course I eventually met my, my husband too. So <laughs> it yeah. was like so the perfect you, storm. So when did you meet Rob kind of quit competing around that time when you moved up there, he was, he, he, he didn't yeah. make the O2 Olympic team and, and kind of hung it up. Um, so is that when you met, you met before you started working at APU? You know, Rob and I met at a camp in British Columbia uh, that Pacific Northwest skiers used to go to at Nat Brown's place. And oh, yeah. so yeah. I was I was 14. He was 17. He was brought in as like the hot gun, the good skier. We didn't even talk. Um, <laughs> he was, you know, just fast and older yeah. and all that stuff. And then when I moved up here, eventually I had a chance to um, be in like a group like there was a condo where a lot of skiers lived and I found out that he might be there. And I was like, Ooh, Rob Whitney. (laughs) (laughs) And at that, at that point, like, I don't know, the Subaru factory team had like a website. So I was like kind of stalking him on that website and was like, Oh my gosh, he's like, he's hot, all this stuff. So (laughs) we ended up being, we ended up being roommates. Um, and it kind of went from there. It's a long story. He he had to move out because uh, he had a large dental bill and no dental insurance. And so he moved back Ooh. in with his mom. And then we got together. And then the joke was he found out uh, he found a way to live at the condo for free. So, um, <laughs> so, <laughs> and, so well, well, Rob is Rob is a guy who's near and dear to both of our hearts. We're going to get back to Rob. Let's, we're going to keep it on skiing, and then we're going to circle back to Rob and your family. Okay. So, so you're you're Sounds in what you're, co- you're you're coaching Anchorage West, which is you know a legendary ski program, How, and then you end up at APU. And, and what what kind of training were you doing in that in 2004 as a coach at at, at West? Were you still training to ski race, or were you just kind of like hanging out with the kids and coaching them? I was not training to ski race at all. I probably went years without without racing. I was just skiing as much as I could because I was so happy to be around skiers and groom trails. And um, I was not the kind of coach who like sat on the side of the ski trail with a clipboard. I was kind of the coach who was out there um, chasing them in intervals so I could like see what they were doing. Um, and so I was I was coaching on skis. And then, you know, I was meeting friends and, you know, kind of doing intervals for fun after work. (laughs) (laughs) So I I always like to say I was skiing for work, I was skiing for fun, and that led to a whole lot of skiing and a huge training base without, without even, like, being deliberate about it. So super unstructured. Very unstructured. Very unstructured, yeah. (laughs) Okay, so then, so then you end up coaching at, at a little more serious program after that. You you ended up at AP. When when did you when did you make that transition from West High School, or did you? Were you coaching both at the same time? Uh, the first year I was coaching both. Um, I essentially met Eric Flora at Junior Olympics coaching. Uh, so Rob and Eric knew each other from APU. I kind of met Eric there. He took over the program. Then he offered me the job. Um, and I had committed to West. And so I said, okay, I'll coach for APU, but I, I can't like ditch West. So I was coaching for West, 
coaching for APU and then spent, you know, five plus years um, as the junior coach and uh, master coach for APU Nordic Ski Center. And that was in a roughly what year? 2005? That was, oh gosh, uh, that was like 2006 to... 10 or you know 2005 to 10 essentially okay <laughs> the, the, so, the dates so, are a little fuzzy <laughs> right i know it's funny how you get old isn't it like i, I get the same i have the same problem but so I, i'm trying to set up a timeline here because my next question is i'm, I'm going to jump ahead just a little bit and back and then we can backtrack to fill it in i first met you i think right at the end of uh like you were probably co- just starting the apu coaching thing it was a super tour i think in west yellowstone i think that that's the first time I ever, I, I'd heard of you, but I, you know, I think it's the first time we ever talked. I think we were in the bar at the Holiday Inn. And that was, I want to say that's 2007-ish, because that's when I started the program at Scholastica. Yeah. So, and then you fast forward not long into the future from that time that we met, and I'm calling the Berkey finish line in 2009. And I'm expecting Rebecca Dusso to win this thing, no problem. She's the, you know, on paper, she's going to win this thing. But she gets taken to the wire by someone in a black and blue suit who sidles up beside her down Main Street in Hayward. And I remember I needed someone to help me find the bill. I'm, like, I'm putting my hand up with the mic going, find out who that is! <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I remember, so, so um, and it's you, of course. And you come, she nips you by a tenth of a second. She still wins. But Holly Brooks, and I'm like, Holly Brooks? I'm like, where did who Holly Brooks that? go? I knew exactly who you were, but I did not expect to see you racing it out to, with Rebecca Dussault to win the Berkey. So second place, of course, was you. And so place the development line, like from that time in West Yellowstone in 2007, you didn't seem like you were training. You were kind of like, you were hanging out. You were one of the coaches. And then, all of a sudden, the, you know, a couple of years later, I'm calling the Berkey and you're, you're racing Rebecca Dussault to the line to win the Berkey. So what went down for you between that t- between 2000 and 2009 to make you think that you could go race the Berkey and maybe win it? And did you think you could win it that day? No, no, of course <laughs> not. Like, I thought that I was just doing the Berkey for fun and, you know, I don't know. I was just there with a bunch of my friends, right? Like, not there in a professional nature at <laughs> yeah. all. Yeah. Um, but at, at one point, so Rob convinced me that I was fitter than I thought. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, no. And I can't remember, maybe the first race that I did was like the tour of Anchorage and, you know, which is kind of like our local big race here, here in Anchorage. And I think I won that and was like, well, that's just a fluke. Like the other skiers are tired. They've had such a long season (laughs) and you know, all this stuff. And so there were like a couple of races that I did well in, but it was just, it was all a fluke. And so I really went to the Berkey just with a bunch of friends, a bunch of guy friends. And like, I had no expectation of being competitive. Like, I mean, I never in my life thought that I would be competing for, for the win in the Berkey, but that was really fun. And I mean, I, it's probably fair to say that that moment like helped change my trajectory or helped change, change my life a little bit. Solomon's full line of skis, boots, poles, clothing, and accessories are designed to deliver the best in enjoyment and performance. Some of the best skiers in the world, like Jesse Diggins and World Cup sprint leader Maya Dahlquist, rely on Solomon's S-Lab line of premium equipment to get them to the finish line first. From the world's top racers to your child's first steps on the snow. And every stride and glide in between, Solomon has you covered from head to foot for every skier. 
Recognizing that the future existence of skiing is directly impacted by climate change, Solomon is confirming that sustainability will be a major aspect of its performance parameters in future winter sports products. Visit Solomon.com for more. Solomon, time to play. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to... That was You led me right to my next question. So after the Berkey... Berkey I mean, it's a year. You're a literally, literally 300, almost 365 days, maybe 355 days to the Olympics in Vancouver at the time of the Berkey or maybe 340. It's 20 days less. And you make it... You make the Olympic team in 2010, a year later. So things took off pretty quickly. By 2012, you're then by 2012, you're the first you're on the first U.S. World Cup relay team to podium in Yelavare, and you become somewhat of a mainstay on the U.S. ski team that is legitimately internationally viable in the early 2010s. But you rose to that level at a time when the when the push for the na- from the national program was achieving and managing international development markers based pretty much on age and specifically young age and skipping college and skiing to train at a higher level. It was to say, it was to say the least, a con- controversial approach to, to, for, uh, among the ski community to what you were squarely outside of the box with coming into the US ski team at that time. So not only were you outside the actual development focus, but you completely represented the antithesis of what the message was to young skiers in the country. Outwardly, from my perspective, because I got to know you better at that time, uh, you managed it really quite well, I have to say, uh, from the outside. But how did you do that within the team and with the coaching staff? Oh, gosh. Um, good call uh, or good question. I'm like, where do I start there? You know, there <laughs> definitely was a huge feeling of imposter syndrome. Um, you know, here I was totally, like you said, outside the developmental mm. pipeline. I had never been to, you know, world juniors, like U23s. I I didn't make NCAAs. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, who was I to think that I belonged anywhere, right? Other Mm -hmm. than testing skis. Like, I was, you know, (laughs) good at that. that, that, Those were my intervals for for a long time. Um, But I don't know. It just kind of worked out. And, you know, at that time, I do remember, um, oh, it was like nationals in... uh, in Maine, you know, and, and like Liz and Morgan and stuff, you know, like some of the members of the national team came back. That was before the tour. And there was this big, like, we have to beat the national team, right? Like, you know, it was, it was just, there, there was a lot of like us versus them kind of uh, feelings essentially. With APU and you mean, right? Well, I think everyone. APU or just everybody. Yeah. Everybody wanted to beat the team. Yeah. I think, I think everyone, right? Like I, you know, the national team, they were the chosen ones and, um, you know, people were really excited to kind of get a crack at them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I don't know, it, it, it just happened. And I still, to this day, I'm like, still, I, I don't, <laughs> how did that happen? Like, I kind of feel like I was the outsider who all of a sudden somehow became the insider. And, you know, obviously like I, I got the super tour spot at one point and then went over to the world cup and started scoring points in every period one race. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, the, like the proof was there. And then, you know, I also think that all of the personalities just meshed and that was the time when our team, you know, we just, we really came together, but you know, it was hard. I was over there in the world cup as a, Right. Member, like not a member of the national team, but, right. you know, they really, they, I, I don't know. I felt, I felt welcomed um, and it worked out. And then 
I, I got, I got named to the team, like, I don't know, five days before my 30th birthday. And that was a big deal to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, what's so compelling about your story is that, um, you essentially broke down a, an actual ethos of the team and you, and you worked well with them. I mean, there was never any, I never caught, and maybe there were some, maybe I'm, I'm sugarcoating it a little bit, but there never seemed to be any animosity or strain between you and the other athletes who were, who were essentially almost a decade younger than you at the time. Um, and, and the other thing is when you finally hung up the ski racing, it seemed like I got a sense that the U S ski team really valued you in your time on the team. I think that, you know, what do you think you brought to the team that made you such a value to like to have that that whole thing working against you that I set up that dynamic and that last question I set up? It basically didn't happen. It didn't happen. Or if it did, it didn't happen for very long because there was a lot of harmony when you came on that team. And when you left when you left it, what do you think that you brought to that team as that kind of that that non-traditional member? Well, I like to say I was the oldest one on the team with the least amount of experience. <laughs> <laughs> like in terms of, you know, in terms of ski, ski experience, but I think what I brought, um, was perspective right on, on life a little bit. And I was maybe just so enthused to be there that I kind of, I brought that energy to the group. And, you know, I, I, I like to think about, um, what, what I was always like this ethos or idea I was always pushing was this idea of a sustainability plan. How do we make this fun? How do we make this competitive and fun? Like they don't have to be in separate buckets. And, you know, I think as skiers, we all have our training plan and, you know, it can be really serious and really like, you know, really detailed and all about these, you know, spreadsheets and stuff. But I was all about the sustainability plan, right? And just like, how do we, how do we enjoy being here? Like, how do we, um, how do we like maintain, you know, friendships um, when we're competitors? But you know, how can we kind of come together and take on the rest of the world rather than each other? So I don't know if I had something to do with the harmony, you know, on the team. I'm, I'm really proud of that. And it was, it was just a really, um, a really, really fun kind of, uh, I don't know, time to be, uh, to be involved. Right. And I never yeah. thought I would be involved at all. So, I mean, it was just crazy. Do you think you made the coaching staff kind of reconsider their, their tone with the, with the young athletes in the country? And the old athletes, for that matter. I mean, I hope that I proved that people can um, can come in and be an asset outside of that development pipeline. Um, I mean, look at Rosie Brennan, right? She was essentially kicked off the national team twice, and now she's slaying, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's so cool. Um, And so, I don't know. I think maybe my story gives people hope, right? That we're outside of that pipeline. Um, You know, hopefully it just kind of models some resilience and, and, you know, kind of like blind optimism. I I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. But I, you know, I, I think that... I I am really I was always intrinsically motivated, right? Like obviously I stuck with it for a long time without being good. I didn't right. do it because I was good. Right. Right? Like a yeah. lot of people I think, 
you know, participate in their sports because they're good. They get a lot of positive reinforcement and a lot of like opportunities given to them at a very young age. And, you know, then some of them, you know, obviously make it, but lots of people just burn out and fizzle. And, you know, I wasn't fizzling because I was just so stoked to be there. <laughs> like, every, every day I just like wake, wake up and kind of pinch myself and be like, is this, yeah. is this really happening? And so I think that that kind of energy is probably refreshing to people who have been in it for a long time, who, you know, maybe they don't take it for granted, but if it just become, if it's your life and you're used to it, then you don't really think it's special. Right. And then someone else comes in from the outside and is like, what? Like we get to do this. Like, this is awesome. (laughs) Um, and I think it's just, it really builds a lot of perspective. It's great. So let's, let's wrap up the running. I got one more question on the ski racing thing. Let's, well, the tech, just about ski racing. So you had, you had a nice international career. You went to two Olympic Games. Which race of all of them are you the most proud of? Oh, jeez. I, I mean, which race at the Olympics or just in which general? Race, or which what? race of all your career? What, what race comes back to mind when you think Holly Brooks in a nutshell, best race of my, my life? Where was it? I mean... You know, it's it's hard. It's like, do you go to your best result or do you go to the most memorable race? Or like, right. I mean, there were a lot of bad races. Yeah. You know, I feel like in 2010, by the time I got there, I like it was so much work to get there. I had never raced internationally before. You know, it was um, that was like experience building. And then for Sochi, I overtrained. Um, and so that was a little bit of a, um, a little bit of an explosion. Um, you know, there was, I was really looking forward to the 30 K skate and there was, um, we kind of made a, a, a mistake in our tactics with ski skis and ski changes. If you remember, that was, I remember I I called that. Oh yeah. Yeah. You guys all went in and nobody else went with you. And it was like, it was like that sinking feeling Robin. Well, your husband and I was standing right next to me during the call for NBC and it's like they all went in and, and he looked he put his head in his hands and I'm like yeah nobody went with you so oh oh that was just brutal but we had been yeah. burned the opposite way at, at Oslo right. World Champs and so totally. you know I don't know I wish that we would just ski on the same pair of skis the whole time can we just have a ski race like without changing skis um, so let me let me I just mean, paint the picture there for everybody. For, let me just paint what happened there. We're talking about the ski exchange was introduced for the first time in Sochi at the Olympics in a 30K. And the United States women came in, I think, about two-thirds of the way through and switched the skis and nobody followed them through. Everybody stayed out there and it really didn't pay off. So so keep going. I still want to hear which, which race you remember the most. Which is the one that you – if you want to be remembered for one race, which is the one that you like the most from your career? I mean, this is so cliche, but, like, how can I not say the relay in Yalavari? Right. Like you can, I, you can, I, I can't, it's cliche, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, yeah. you know, the day, the day before individual 10 K skate, you know, I had the best, um, result of my career, which was fifth Yep. and, um, and Keegan was third that, that day. And so that was really like one of, if not the first like distance podium for, for us women. Um, I mean, in a lot, in a, yeah, in a long, in a long time, time yeah. at least the modern era. Yeah. In the modern era. Um, And then so the next day uh, I got a chance to be be on the relay team. And in theory, I would have loved to skate. That was that was my forte. But I, um, you know, I was able I was chosen to be the, the scramble leg. And um, 
that was, it was just an incredible experience. Anyone who um, isn't familiar with the story, we essentially, uh, it, it was our, our first relay team podium. Um, so Jesse was in a, a sprint for third and, you know, it was just, it was this huge watershed moment for women skiing, for U.S. skiing. It was the start of many um, you know, many, many podiums. And it's funny because I, I think we were so moved. All the other skiers were so moved by how moved we were, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and still to this day, people are like, still to this day, people are like, gosh, you know, remember that race you guys won? And we're like, we didn't, I mean, we won in our minds, but we were in a sprint for third, <laughs> but yeah. like, I mean, that day it was like as good as winning the lottery. Right. And, uh, yeah. Thomas Zipfel, the, you know, who does the cartoons, Cartoons, you know, there was this cartoon of us and it was, um, we were all on stage and it said the American revolution. Right. And we were like cowgirls with like guns and, you know, cause essentially (laughs) this is how we're viewed in Europe. Um, but it, I mean, we were, and then I, I don't know, I think to a certain extent we were all like floating right on cloud nine for, I don't know, two years after that or something, you know, but it just really proved to all of us that, that we could do it, that we could be competitive. And I think it was that watershed moment that then just snowballed into, you know, the, the team sprint gold medal and, you know, who knows what's in store, um, you know, for Beijing, I'm really excited. So we're due, we're due. Yeah. Well, I think it's a great choice. It was 2012 in the 2012 season. And you guys, you guys got on the podium, and you actually were a part of creating that imagery that Thomas Sipfel made in that in that cartoon that has carried on to this day. So, I think it's a, I don't think it's cliche at all. I just want to let you know I think that's a, that was a great choice. <laughs> I, I half expected you to say that, but I wasn't sure, so I asked the question. Yeah. So, so you talked about Rob, your husband, who was we have to say Rob was kind of you said it yourself. He's kind of the golden child of U.S. skiing in the late 1990s. He was a seventh at the 1999 Junior World Championships, behind eventual gr- German great. Uh, World Cup and Olympic medalist Axel Teichman, and Rob hung hung up his ski racing, his serious ski racing, his international ski racing career pretty early, um, and uh, in, but he, you know, you guys, you guys met and you got married, and he was basically there for the rise of Holly Brooks to the U.S. ski team, and I just kind of want to ask a little bit about you know how what what role has Rob played or what role did he play in your evolution as a elite level international ski racer? Well, as someone who had been there, right, who had um, skied at a really high level. And, you know, at that point when he was seventh at World Juniors, like no one, there were very few people, you know, now I feel like that's common, right? Like, right. <laughs> you know, our, oh, seventh? Our, expect- yeah. our expectations have really changed. But at the time, you know, yeah. it, it was like, it was it was a, it was a landmark, right? It was a big deal. So I think he knew, he knew, uh, what good ski racing was. And somehow he saw that in me. And again, I identified as that mediocre skier from the Pacific Northwest who never did anything. Right. So Mm -hmm. I needed a lot of like pushing, right. Like Mm -hmm. a lot of, um, reassurance from other people, other people telling me, uh, to enter this race or you can do it or whatever. So he believed in me before I believed in myself. And then, you know, I think at some point he may have regretted it. Right. Cause he like, <laughs> he like talked me into being a ski racer and then I was gone for five months a year. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. 
<laughs> um, you know, that, that, that's, uh, that's challenging. Right. But, yeah. um, but he's really the one that pushed me into it. Yeah. Do you think, he, do you think uh, you would have gotten there without him in your life? No. Okay. Fair. Okay. So you and Rob have, uh, have four year old twins and I, I have, you know, I have two kids myself, but I can't imagine having twins t- to begin with. I mean, so kudos to both of you. Uh, I'm <laughs> friends with both of you and I see a lot of photos on social media and like social media tends to do, you make it all look pretty easy and pretty fun, but, <laughs> but your description coming onto this podcast made me realize it's, it's probably not, which I assumed it wasn't, but you remain very active as a mother of young twins. You have your own business, you're a businesswoman. So what do you do to stay active and even quote unquote train as an active mom and professional right now? How do you keep that all going? Uh, I, (laughs) it feels like a little bit of a shit show all the time. Um, a bit of survival, uh, but you know, physical activity is a huge part of my life. Um, and I want it to be a part of my kids' lives as well. And so, Early on, you know, you're like hiking mountains with one on the front, one on the back, um, just trying to fit it in where, wherever, wherever you can. Um, and, and your so, kids I mean, are pretty, it, your, your kids are pretty spirited. I'm, I'm, I'm point this out. So I'm, I'm, I'm talking to Holly. She's in her car because she knows that her kids are going to, are going to sabotage this moment if, if she's around. So, so how do you handle the kids that they clearly have a lot of energy? I'm assuming that helps to keep them active and, and, and have them want to go out in the woods with you. They have a lot of energy and I just have to say I'm in my car across the street hiding behind a snowbank because like <laughs> even being in my car in my driveway would not like this podcast would not be safe or sacred. Um, so, but like, but what's really fun is after this, uh, we're actually taking them alpine skiing. I mean, this is one of the things I love about living in Alaska. We live across the street from one of the best trail systems in the country, the hillside North Bicentennial Park. And then we have ski jumps and we have an alpine hill right here. And so, you know, it's so fun. We're gonna, we're gonna take our kids out, um, you know, we, it, it's hard fitting in, like, how do we exercise everyone in the family? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, sometimes we'll, we'll like one of us will drive to a venue and the other one will ski bike or run there. And then the other one will ski bike or run home. Right. Like it's, it's hard to fit everything in, um, you know, as a, as a parent, but we also, I feel really strongly about modeling that, you know, for, for the kids. And I feel like it's really easy when you, when when you have kids to get busy and, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, have to put their own personal fitness like on, on the wayside and um, don't get me wrong. I'm like not in amazing shape, but I, I do the best I can. Um, you know, Monday morning, Keegan and I, uh, we, we have 6 a.m. lifting dates. Mon- Monday morning, 6 a.m. <laughs> we oh, got we got to keep our, our mom strength. <laughs> <laughs> So you're, you're also professional. I, I want to just, so what do you do? I know you have your own business. Can you just tell us, tell us what you, what you're doing for, what is your business? What, what, and and how, what, what, yeah, just tell us what you're doing. So I, I am involved in lots of different projects. Uh, I have lots of different passions, but I am a licensed professional counselor in the state of Alaska. So, um, I have a private practice, um, you could call it a therapy practice or a coaching practice, consulting practice, whatever you'd like. Um, but I, I like to talk about working at the intersection of mental health and performance. And so I am essentially a therapist for athletes. 
Um, and you know, athletes are people too. Athletes have their physical health, they have their mental health. And, you know, I, I really, really enjoy that. Um, I loved being a ski coach. I just didn't know if it was sustainable with what I wanted to do. And that was, this is really my way of staying in sport. So I have a lot of really awesome clients, uh, that I love, I love working with. So that's like job number one. Um, job number two is I am the co-founder of a project called Moms Matter Now with Kalisa Casting, who Mm -hmm. you might know, um, from, from the Midwest. And, um, you know, our, our project, we're kind of creating an online membership, but we're creating courses, um, that help kind of support, empower, and educate moms so that they don't lose themselves, their identities, their athleticism, their relationships in this journey of, you know, entering motherhood. So I'm really passionate about uh, athlete mental health and maternal mental health. And then, uh, you know, my my third project, which you and I have talked about this before, but um, is uh, I do some work in the body image and eating disorder space. And so, We've actually been on a podcast about relative energy deficiency in sport uh, right. together. Yep. Together, yeah. Yeah, and so yeah. actually it's it's really exciting. Um, so I'm part of this like Red S project. And so actually uh, we're developing a new website. It's it's actually live, red, red-s.com. So to help kind of build awareness and... Um, about relative energy deficiency in sport. And, um, it's, it's, you know, it's pervasive in, in sports. Um, and so we really want to help kind of spread the word about it, uh, educate people about it. Um, hopefully if we can, uh, deter people from, from going there, <laughs> Yeah, but, yeah. um, yeah, all stuff very so, close to my heart. That's all stuff very close to my heart, which is why I asked. And I knew you were doing that. And where can they where can they find your services online? The, the, your professional services as a counselor. Yeah, uh, my website is hollybrooks.com. Um, so there's that. That's the therapy site. Um, MomsMatterNow.com is my maternal mental health site. And then red-s.com um, is the relative energy deficiency in sport site. So awesome. So we're going to wrap it up now. So just looking back on your ski career today, what do you miss most about it? And what don't you miss about it? <laughs> um, literally on Monday at the gym with, with Keek, we were like, remember like being fit or remember when our jobs were to like get as strong as possible and take care of our bodies and recover and come back stronger. (laughs) (laughs) So, but it's funny, like when you, yeah, I mean, I miss being fit, but essentially at the same time, like when I was fit or when I was an athlete, I feel like you're just always so tired, right? That you don't, you don't actually feel that fit even though, even though you are, um, I so anyway, I do I do miss getting to work out with friends <laughs> and you know have a very concrete goal. So I miss that. I I don't miss living on the road for 5 months a year and you know putting the rest of life and family um on on hold that that's challenge it's wonderful but it comes with its own set of challenges. Well, we've had your life on hold now for about 43 minutes, according to my watch. So I think that's enough. <laughs> We're going to let you get back to your life and your family. And Holly, we really appreciate catching up with you. It's so fun to always, always talk to you. And um, thanks so much for coming on Threshold. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. 
Yeah, thanks for having me, Chad. You can count on one hand the number of Americans who have won the Berkey, skied in two Olympics, and stood on a World Cup podium. Only one of them focused on top-level ski racing for a mere five years of her life. If you consider all that goes into getting an athlete on the World Cup podium, that's an intensely short period of time, no matter where one comes from. Holly nearly accidentally fell to the top of domestic ski racing, and then in order to progress to the international scene, entered an environment which she categorically did not fit. She made herself valuable to that group that maybe wouldn't have wanted her. First, she did it by skiing so fast they simply needed her. But maybe more importantly, she brought a perspective to the team that they probably didn't even know they needed until they got her. The long and short of it is, Holly made herself into a piece of a puzzle that fit. But she had no level of luxury at any time to fall out of that favor. She walked a tightrope the entire time she was there. Cross-country ski racing is an individual sport, but winning at an internationally has very much proven, at least in the United States, to need a team to pull it off. You notice she chose the Yellow Water Relay as the race of her career. That sizes it up pretty well. Competitive excellence can be inspirational and transformative. It can also be sinister and transactive and everything in between. That's what makes the whole thing so darn interesting. And every now and then, someone comes along and completely breaks the mold and reminds us that a national development ethos has room for anomalies. Holly Brooks herself no doubt learned plenty on her journey, but her ski career left everyone around her with something learned as well. Today, she spreads the learning further afield, all while keeping the importance of a race result in perspective to life in general. Holly, in her own words, is an unlikely Olympian. As everyone works into a fever pitch about American Olympic team selection this month for Beijing, Holly is a rare coin I simply wanted to pull out of the drawer, shine up a little bit, and have us all admire for a moment. To remember what the Olympics and creating Olympians really is and should be all about. That's Threshold for this episode. I'm Chad Salmola. Thanks for listening.